Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with John H. Walton, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and Graduate School, to talk about his new book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation, published by IVP Academic 2023. The church has too often lost its way in reading the Old Testament for lack of sound principle of interpretation. When careless habits get us off track, we can lose sight of what the Bible is really saying, derailing our spiritual growth, and even risking to discredit God's Word. We need a consistent approach to give us confidence as faithful interpreters. In Wisdom for Faithful Reading, the trusted Old Testament scholar John Walton lays out the tried and true best practices developed over four decades in the classroom. His principles are memorable, practical, enlightening, including that the Bible is written for us, not to us. Reading the Bible instinctively is not reliable. More important than characters is what the narrator does with characters. Not everything has a biblical view, and so on. Along with identifying common missteps, Walton insights stay focused on what the Old Testament text communicated to its original audience and what it has to say for us today. When we submit ourselves to be accountable to the author's intentions, we experience the true authority of Scripture. A faithful reading fulfills and fuels a faithful life. Walton equips us to read the breadth of the Old Testament with more knowledgeably, to pay attention to God's plans and purposes, to recognize good interpretations, and to truly live in the light of Scripture. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're quite welcome. Happy to be here. Great. So before we get into the content of this uh, wonderful book, tell us a little bit about your academic background as it relates to, you have obviously 40 years of experience, but your academic background in relation to biblical Old Testament interpretation. Okay, well, um, I've, uh, as you said, taught for 42 years. Uh, The first half was at Moody Bible Institute, and the second half is here at Wheaton College. And uh, so in that time, I've taught many, many different Old Testament books, classes, courses on one book or another. Uh, but I've also often told my students that every book study we do is actually a course in hermeneutics. And we just happen to be applying those hermeneutics to this particular book. And so that's that's often been my focus. Again, I often tell my students, it doesn't really deeply affect me whether you agree with my interpretations or not. Uh, but I do deeply care that you adopt a consistent methodology. And I'm offering you what I believe is a consistent methodology, and that's all for you to consider as you develop your own methodology. So I've been talking about this stuff for decades, and that's sort of how I'm placed academically in this context, uh, trying to deal with the Old Testament as as the Old Testament. So I mentioned when I was reading the summary of the book that we must be accountable to the author's intentions and that we experience the true authority of Scripture. 
Is that where Scripture's authority is located? What does it mean for it to be located in the author's intentions, as opposed to, say, um, the authority of Scripture is located in all sorts of uh, places? Well, I, again, my concern is that we have a consistent hermeneutic that's operating under a reasonable and defensible controls. Um, and therefore, if we don't have any clear idea of where authority is located, we're not going to be able to have that kind of consistent methodology. Uh, there really aren't very many options for what you could consider the locus of authority. You could say the authority is God, um, but at that point, our only access to God's message is through the authors. Since that's the mechanism that he chose, those human instruments, that's how we have to get to him. And I make the point in the book that we can't just do an end run and say, oh, the authors didn't understand this, but but what? Um, you're saying you do? How do you know that? How do you come to those conclusions? What evidence do you have to offer? It can't just be your feelings. Uh, some people also might punt to, uh, the Holy Spirit told me. Well, that's a conversation ender. I mean, there's no place to go from there. That's not falsifiable. It's not verifiable. And therefore, it doesn't have very much meaning to it. So there really aren't a lot of options. And, you know, we could say it's vested in tradition, but are we really saying the authority of the tradition interpretation is more important than the authority of what the authors themselves intended? So uh, to me, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, consider the options and choose the one that, that actually has some defensibility to it. You indicate that what makes an interpretation defensible, what makes it have the ponderance of evidence is when readers um, utilize context in that interpretation. What is beneficial about approaching or utilizing con cultural context and, and also what kind of context exists? And, and then maybe even third is, what is this context? So, you know, uh, is it just ancient Israel, or is ancient Israel a, a, a variegated historical period and uh, historical phenomena? Well, one of my chapters is context is everything. And I, I wanted to explain that point, but I didn't feel like I really had to defend that point. We all know that in every communication we ever do, if context is ignored, the possibility for distortion or you know, re misrepresentation are always possible. So I think that people can generally accept that that's important. Uh, the question, of course, is what kind of context are we talking about and can we get to them? And so I talk about context in terms of um, the literary context, uh, in terms of the cultural context, in terms of the theological context, um, you know, in terms of the linguistic context, what do words mean to the people who are using them and hearing them? And so those are all part of the context. And with each of those, we can develop evidence to demonstrate what the context is telling us. Now, in terms of the cultural context, you ask specifically, now the cultural context is the context of the ancient Near East. Now, we can, we can certainly engage in a conversation about how much it shared in their worldview and culture with the ancient Near East. But I think it's fairly demonstrable that they shared a good deal, uh, certainly more with a Babylonian or an Egyptian than they do with us. 
And so for me, I don't have a starting point as being us. <laughs> the starting point is that ancient world. And certainly we have to be wise as we consider, okay, what things would have been different, what things would have been the same. Uh, but the fact is, all of that exercise uh, demonstrates that Israel is indeed part of that ancient world, even despite the things that God kind of drew them away from to get them to think differently. That's a fairly narrow set of things and a much broader set of the similarities. I had a pastor growing up who said the Bible is as clear as day and can be understood by everyone. How, and that is a, a at least an element or maybe a simplified version of what the reformers called perspicuity of scripture, that it's, it's, it's knowable by, by every, it, it, the message of scripture is understandable. How does, do you, does your emphasis on cultural context, which is for many people obscure, academic, um, provisional, how does that square with a traditional Protestant approach that the scripture is understandable? Well, I, I certainly agree that the basic message of the scripture is understandable uh, to any reader. And in that sense, I've, I find myself in full agreement with the reformers, but note also that the reformers wrote thousands and thousands of pages of commentary and theological description, uh, which they clearly didn't think was transparent to any reader, and they disagreed among themselves. So we have to understand that the idea of the clear message of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, is not a blanket statement that covers everything. You know, it, it might be, and I think it is, absolutely clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins. We need to put our trust in Him. Great. Does that tell you who the sons of God and daughters of men are? No, it doesn't. Okay? And that is not crystal clear. And we shouldn't expect anybody to, it's, you know, so we, we have to differentiate. Um, sometimes I would differentiate between core theology on the one hand and individual exegesis of individual passages on another. And often it's the latter, those individual exegeses that require us to understand the, the various contexts, whether they're cultural or linguistic or literary or even theological. So we have context, whether it be linguistic, cultural, uh, uh, theological context we've we've encountered and we're considering. We are, you know, improving. Let's say our knowledge of Hebrew grammar and syntax. How do we then, if we come to a certain point, know? And I briefly kind of alluded to this. How do we know our interpretation is maybe not correct, but is we can be sure that this is a con uh, a a conclusion based on the text that is warrant, warranted of attention. Sure. Well, the point I make in the book is that the strongest interpretation is going to have the strongest evidence to support it. Um, and that, that's, that's a, a truism. It's easy to say. But of course, we still know that people come to different interpretations. And that's because they assess the evidence differently. In some cases, there might be evidence that they're not even aware of. Other cases, it might be evidence that they don't think counts. Other places, they might say, well, yes, that's evidence, but here this other evidence is stronger. And so in that sense, we, we are disagreeing um, with what, among one another about kind of how we weigh and assess uh, the evidence. Still, the criteria is the evidence. Uh, so that's why I talk about faithful interpretation instead of right interpretation. 
A faithful interpretation means you're going to take account of the authority of the text. You're going to be accountable to it. You're going to submit yourself to it. And you're going to be on a, a search for evidence that has the integrity of controls and all of those things. And that's what I call faithful interpretation. Still, faithful interpretation can lead different people to different conclusions. I know that one interpretive method, hermeneutic, that many people consider faithful is a Christological reading. There's a, there's a book, I don't know if I have the title right, called you know, Finding Christ on Every Page. And you warn against a Christological reading. It, 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 explain that and explain your kind of alternative that is still at least in reference to Christ. Sure. So uh, as, as you can easily figure out, once I put my stake in the ground to say it's the author's intentions that carry authority, that leaves out lots of uh, interpretation that comes under that Christological heading. Uh, because people who are doing that don't claim that the human authors knew they were t speaking about Christ. No, the author of Genesis did not think that uh, Jacob's stone pillow was Jesus or that Jake Joseph's multicolored coat was Jesus. Uh, so the minute I set that up as a control, uh, that ends up ruling out some of the things that have been done over the centuries, not just over the years. And in my mind, I can't give myself the luxury of saying, yeah, but I really like that imagery. I really like where that gets me in my sermon. I, I can't do that. Not if I'm accountable to the authority of Scripture. And so to me, that ends up ruling out what some standard approaches have been, not just for myself, but for other people that I would look at what they're doing and say, wait a minute, how can you do that? You know, where where do you get this idea that, you know, Jacob's pillow is, is Jesus? Um, and so one of the ways that I talk about that is that I like to think about the text as what I would call a tethering post. It's hammered in the ground. It's the authority of Scripture. And the, the rope that tethers me to the text is my evidence. The evidence that I can garner about the, the authors and their communicative intentions. Okay, that's not typically the way that Scripture has been treated. Um, the alternative is that it's a launching pad or a springboard, uh, in which case you kind of stand on and then pshoom, off you go, uh, launched in, and, and then uh, the objective at that point is not, I'm going to find out what the authoritative intentions of the original authors were. Rather, the objective is, I need to present some inspirational ideas for myself or for the people I'm talking to. And inspirational ideas becomes the objective. And the springboard is the way to get you there. But instead of being tethered with evidence, rather you're springing off into your imagination. And, you know, even though we may really, really like those inspirational thoughts, we have to ask the question, where are the controls? Where is the authority? How can you justify doing that? So it comes back to that consistent hermeneutic. You know, we look at people that we disagree with, whether they're people within Christianity or people on the fringes, what we call cults, and we look at what they do with Scripture and we say, you can't do that. Okay, well, wait a minute. Are we doing the same kinds of things? 
Uh, are we trying to impose a control on them just because we disagree with their conclusions that we would not impose on ourselves? And I think those are important questions that that we have to consider as we consider our, our methods. So what would I do with Jesus? Okay. <laughs> Accept him in my heart. No. Okay. Besides that, <laughs> okay. Interpretationally. Well, you know, I talk about the difference and I'm certainly, I didn't create this terminology, but the distinction that's been fairly conventional in the last generation, the distinction between Christocentric and Christotelic. That is, I agree that the Bible, as it unfolds God's plans and purposes, is certainly moving toward Jesus. They don't know it. They don't know how it's happening. The passages aren't, in their minds, uh, authoritatively opening up that world, but it lands on Jesus. And once Jesus comes around, we start seeing how those dots are being connected. And so that's more the Christotelic approach that says it's moving toward Jesus. So it's not Jesus on every page. It's not Jesus in every verse. It's not Jesus behind every bush. It's it's seeing how all of this text helps us to understand the plans and purposes of, of God, in which case we will eventually understand how Jesus fills in those gaps. I have a mug, and this pertains to your uh, discussion of launching pad, that's a quote from Deuteronomy, one of the blessing portions. And uh, I don't have it with me, sadly, right now, but I wish I had a mug that also had the curses section. I feel like it would be it would be complete. So yeah. uh, you bring up God's story, God's plans and purposes. What is that? Before we get into the various genres of the Old Testament, which elaborate this, give us what those plans and purposes and story is broadly. Well, uh, again, in one sense, we only know the end point of that, the final objective of God's plans and purposes in fairly vague terms. Uh, kingdom of God, uh, new heaven and new earth, you know, um, God's people restored. And, you know, I mean, we just have those general sorts of things. Um, but what we see in Scripture is how God has been working toward those ends, whatever shape they eventually take beyond the general to the more specific. So God's plans and purposes, um, as as I understand the meta narrative that's embedded in the Old Testament as well as leading into the new, is that God has created us to be in relationship with us and to dwell among us. And I find that in the earliest chapters of the Old Testament and then to the latest chapters of the New Testament. So that um, helps me understand sort of what has guided God's unfolding of his plans and purposes, relationship and presence. Well, you mentioned earliest chapters of the Old Testament. We'll go there. What are some common misunderstandings and misconceptions that readers have of the Pentateuch? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a ton of them. Yeah, it's, of course, it's very difficult literature. And you know as well as I do that people, um, even even though they speak the language of valuing and cherishing and embracing the Word of God as God's grace in their lives, still they read Old Testament and they don't know what to do with it. Uh, they say, yes, this is God's Word. No, I have no idea what it's talking about. So, um, so they, they do the best they can. And sometimes that might go in a positive direction. Other times, wow, no. <laughs> so uh, in the Pentateuch, there are things, uh, everything from trying to understand creation to understanding the covenant to understanding the Torah 
um, what we call, I think, as I indicate, um, misinformed the law, um, that that's really not what we're shooting for, uh, not, not a good understanding of what that is. So those kinds of topics show up in the Pentateuch. And of course, they're big, they're big topics um, that take uh, some unpacking. In your portion of the narratives, you discuss characters. Um, when I was young, uh, there were many books, it seemed, on taking leadership lessons or moral lessons from the judges or Samson or even oddly um, Hezekiah, you know. So what's wrong with that? Why can't people, you know, base uh, as a launching pad the morals and behaviors and immorals of Old Testament narrative characters? Well, you know, sometimes it's very clear that characters are behaving badly and we don't have any trouble saying, I shouldn't do that. Um, and likewise, sometimes we look at characters, you know, Joseph resisting Potiphar's wife, and we say, wow, wow, he's good. I, I would hope that I could, you know, be that kind of person. Uh, so there's no question that we can gain um, uh, encouragement or warning from these role models. But we still have to ask the question, is that what they're there for? Is that what they're in Scripture to do? Just the fact that we can do it doesn't mean that's what its scriptural sense is, because we know lots of other places where it's not so clear. Uh, we don't know the motivations of the characters, and so we can't pass judgment on them. And so we can't decide in the end, did they do something good or bad or you know selfish or, or misguided? or, or we, we can't tell because the text doesn't make that clear to us. And there are sufficient numbers of those cases that it should warn us against thinking, these characters are just here to be role models for us. Again, no question that they could be role models, but any character in any literature can be a role model. Just because they can be doesn't mean that's what it's there for. And that's an important distinction that I make. And so in that sense, you know, great if you can use them that way, but we're still doing the springboard thing. We're still launching in our own imagination of what is acceptable behavior or not, and to some extent, we're determining whether they can be a good role, or role model or a bad one because we've already got an idea of what proper behavior is, which is our idea. Okay, so that's, again, not authority uh, of the text. So a statement that I would make, and I didn't say this clearly in the book, but the concept is there, the messages of narrative are not delivered by the characters. They're delivered by the narrator, okay? So we don't look to the actions or the words of the characters to receive the authoritative message. The authoritative word is the narrator's word because it's all graphe, all scripture that's inspired. It's the written word. Characters are not inspired, no matter how good they are, okay? It's the word that's inspired, and the word is provided by the narrators, and it's their opinion that counts, that carries authority. And so that should steer us away from this idea that um, somehow we have to glean the message of Scripture from the behavior or the words of the characters. Now, this is God's story. It's not their story. Not Abraham or David or Ruth or Esther or Moses. It's not their story. It's God's story. And the narrator is the one who's giving us that story. A, a brief aside, you do discuss this in the book. When you mention narrator, 
so the final the authority of the text is located, I assume, in its final composition, mm-hmm. uh, and that that'll does that'll that that allows, I guess, certain liberality in determining source authorship. Are these things that we should even consider in interpretation? Well, uh, to the extent that we can sort them out, we should consider them. But in most cases, we can't sort them out. So we've got the narrator's word. We assume that in the final composition, the narrator has been represented well in whatever editorial or redactive process was involved uh, in the composition. All we've got is that final product. Uh, So we, we are working on the assumption that we can trust that the narrator's voice has been well preserved. But it's not something you can prove and not something you can verify or falsify. When I was uh, growing up, Proverbs, it seemed there was always a proverb for every situation. Uh, And there was always a psalm for every situation. I actually recently picked up a book by Philip Jenkins on Psalm 51, I believe, and, and just how it seems that in any instance, everyone has a psalm or proverb Rarely, never a Song of Solomon, but that's, I guess, a different story. What are we doing, potentially misinformed, when we read Proverbs or Psalms as a source of prayer or a source of exact wisdom? Well, again, there's always the danger that we um, we are not reading the genre as well as we should, or not tracking with the author's intentions as well as we should. Uh, so in Proverbs, it's very common for people to, to pick up various Proverbs and treat them as if they're promises. Train up the child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. And parents kind of take solace in that when they have wayward children. Um, but, uh, well, this is not a promise. Proverbs, by their very nature, are generalizations that are sometimes true, but not always true. And so we, we misunderstand the genre. If we pick them up and say, God, you promised, and I'm holding you to it. Well, no, he never did. And so in that sense, we have to be aware of the, the genre. I mean, that's beyond the point that that verse says they won't depart from it. In the case of parents with a wayward child, he already did. <laughs> okay. And it doesn't say he'll always come back. <laughs> we have to be really careful. But people do this, especially when they're in desperation. Uh, they they latch on to things that they hope can give them kind of God's word that will bring them comfort and hope. Um, it's a little bit different situation when we get to the Psalms. Uh, people very easily think that the Psalms um, are Israel's hymn book and therefore my hymn book or my prayer book. And so Psalms is there to tell me what to pray. And again, that's a mistake uh, not so much in genre, but in terms of what's the purpose of the collection. Uh, so that's more literary kinds of things. Um, but, you know, you have to notice that when Jesus' disciples ask him, how should we pray? He doesn't say, well, you've got 150 of them over there. Just go go to it. He doesn't point them to Psalms. He gives them something else. Um, and so we have to recognize that to be the case. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't pray the Psalms. Um, or that you shouldn't pray the Psalms, although I would say there are at least a couple of them that we should not pray. Um, that's what they're there for. Again, what are the narratives there for? What's Torah there for? What are the Proverbs there for? Is a question I keep asking uh, and trying to give guidance so that we can understand that. Because we don't know what they're there for, 
we're not going to be able to use them well. And so with Psalms, we have to talk about what they're there for. Certainly it's using the hymns and prayers of Israel to illustrate something. What is it trying to illustrate? And I propose, and it's not my idea, lots of people would go the same direction, that this is uh, there to shed light on the whole idea of the kingship of God and how it works in the world, uh, whether in individuals who are in crisis or individuals who are wanting to shout their praise to the heavens or the nation when it's in uh, complaining about its, its difficulties. Um, these are all there to illustrate the various scenarios in which people might have questions about God's kingship or might be seeking to praise God for his kingship and what forms that takes. So again, it's not there as a how-to. Um, it's there for a, another kind of purpose. Well, another very, let's just say, uh, overly utilized, maybe mistakenly genre, especially in our current moment. Uh, I, I was raised on Left Behind and, and Late Great Planet Earth, those books, is uh, Prophecy and Apocalypse. Uh, people uh, of all sorts, of all denominations, seem to come to these texts, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, Daniel, and they um, garner a lot of very different views about what these books and genre entail. So tell us, what what is the right function of reading prophecy and apocalypse? Right. So here are the ideas that the prophecies are not there so we can chart the future. They're not there so we can make our eschatological charts. They're not there so we can publish our timelines, and certainly not there so we can sell our houses and go out on a hill and wait. Um, that's not what they're for. That's not how they operate. That's not what prophecy does. And so I would say things like prophecy is more about revealing God and his plans and purposes than about revealing the future. And when I talk about revealing his plans and purposes, I'm not talking about in specificity, that we often try to do, but revealing his plans and purposes, how they have been proceeding throughout history, uh, past, present, and future, and what, the, what it means that God is in control, what it means that God gives his people hope, not by giving specifics, but so that we can trust God. And yet we try to fill in all the blanks. Um, it's instead of trusting God because we don't know, we think, well, I'm trusting God to give me all the answers ahead of time. That's a different sort of thing. Uh, so I think that we have um, misunderstood the genres, both prophecy and apocalyptic. We've made them into be something that they're not. And that that's caused a lot of infighting in the church. It's caused a lot of people to have uh, crushed expectations. Uh, it's caused a lot of people to pay a lot of attention to things that they really are making up. Again, launching our imaginations instead of um, tethering to the authority of the text. The Gospels utilize, as well as the epistles, a variety of Old Testament images and quotations that uh, a reader, after reading your text, would say, wait a minute, they're not following authorial intention like in Hosiah, taking firstborn son out of Israel, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, prophecies about Bethlehem, etc. Why? What is the old? What are New Testament authors doing when they employ those prophetic quotes from the Old Testament? 
Uh, I would use words like appropriation or application. Uh, I like appropriation, but it's picked up a negative um, connotation in today's world that appropriation has to be somehow um, uh, abusive. And, and, and certainly I'm not suggesting that. But the idea, you know, they're not trying to reconstruct what the prophet's message is. They probably would have figured that was perfectly clear. Um, they're trying to talk about what fulfillment is looking like in their day. They're not projecting a fulfillment beyond their day. They're writing after the ministry of Christ, and they're trying to connect the dots with the ministry of Christ in front of them, where they are then connecting things to what they found in the Old Testament. Um, but they're not, they're not attempting to recover the authorial intentions. Now, that might pose a problem to us. We might say, well, if they're not doing that, how can we trust them? And that comes to inspiration. We believe that their writings are also inspired, and therefore we grant them authority, and therefore we trust them. But they're not using the hermeneutic we're using. You don't come to authoritative information simply by using a hermeneutic. That's all we've got to work with. But that, again, they are under inspiration, and I'm perfectly willing to trust uh, what they conclude. Well, they say, people say, if, if they're not doing that, if they're doing things this other way, why can't we? Well, you can, but since you're not inspired and you're seeking authority, you can't get away with it because you've got no controls. If you can just look back at the Old Testament, grab anything you want and say, this is fulfilled in this way, where are your controls? Um, and that's, that's my concern. So I don't believe that we have to validate their method hermeneutically. I don't believe that we have to be dubious of them because we cannot validate their hermeneutic. And I don't believe that we should be trying to somehow repeat or um, reflect, practice their hermeneutic. Um, we have other issues that we have to deal with. And again, consistency and controls and authority are all part of that picture. Well, you bring up issues we deal with, and you have spoken against kind of popular notions of application, or at least application is a first source of reading. What are ways, this is a penultimate question, what are ways in which we can apply the message, the story of the Old Testament in our, in our lives as Christians or our lives um, outside of the church? Well, I think we have to embrace it as what I believe it is. That is, it is God's revelation of how he has been working out his plans and purposes from creation all the way through the Old Testament period, through Christ, through Pentecost, and launching into new creation. Uh, what we are supposed to do then is not take each story and each psalm and each proverb and each prophecy and, as I say in the book, put it in the me box or the me circle. It, it, each verse does not have something to say to me about me. Each verse, uh, each passage, uh, each book uh, has something to say about how God has been carrying out his plans and purposes. We are supposed to understand, therefore, how God is working out his plans and purposes. And then when it comes to our personal application, we're supposed to ask, so how do I participate in God's plans and purposes? Not, how is he giving me a way to succeed in life? Not, how do I find the will of God? Not, how do I find a role model to imitate? 
not how do I find a promise to embrace, none of those things. How do I understand God's plans and purposes, and how do I participate in them so I'm working toward his ends instead of my own? I appreciate your, um, not dismissal, but critique of the common assumption evangelicalism, everything has a biblical world to you. Um, I, I recently read Albert Walter's Creation Regained, and he ends his book by saying that our church was able to approach a biblical worldview of dancing. <laughs> and I, and I, after reading your book, I thought, I, I still can't, I, mean, I know how they got there, but I don't know how they got there genuinely. Um, well, anyway, thank you so much, John, for elaborating this I think, wonderful, insightful book that I think is beneficial to, to anyone who's approaching um, the Old Testament. Um, before we go and before we end the interview, give us a sense of uh, your future projects. Are there any more commentaries or uh, Lost World, which is your, I think, most famous series? Any more of those books on the horizon? Well, Lost World of the Prophets is already at the publisher. It's already gone through editing and should be out in uh, maybe February or so. So Lost World of the Prophets, which deals with both prophecy and apocalyptic, goes much more deeply into some of the issues that we just opened up. Uh, a little bit in the Wisdom for Faithful reading book. So that one's coming. I'm also just about finished writing uh, the, a book called, I don't know what the final title would be, I'm calling it Advances in the Lost World of Genesis. Um, Lost World of Genesis 1 was published 15 years ago. Uh, I've, I've done hundreds and hundreds of presentations since then on that material and think about it all the time, talk about it all the time. Uh, and so I'll be talking about what are some new insights, some new pieces of information, some um, new sources that have come together, just trying to advance all of that along. It's not a revised edition at all. It's saying kind of what's our next steps. And in the process, I'll be answering over 60 frequently asked questions about, uh, you know, the lost world of Genesis. So I don't know if IVP is going to count that as a lost world book. Um, it sort of is. But at any rate, so that one's that one's on the way as well. I'm also nearing the end of a two-volume Daniel commentary. Uh, that's in the Nicot series that Erdman's does, and I'm working with my co-author Aubrey Buster, who's my colleague here at Wheaton, and so we're doing a fairly substantial Daniel commentary, uh, as those as the volumes in that series are. Fantastic. Um. Will you be engaging with, in your new Genesis Lost World, the rather controversial book, uh, In Quest of the Historical Adam by Bill Craig? You know, it's generally been my policy that I don't engage my critics. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not there to kind of um, denounce or criticize or ev even evaluate uh, people who take either popular or contrary positions. Um, some of the things that uh, that he raises will show up in the frequently asked questions, although not necessarily because he raises them, just their questions that, that come up. I think at this point I've referred to his book once, just in terms of a footnote describing what it does. Um, but it's uh, even though I'm answering questions that sometimes critics raise, it's not a book to answer my critics. It's a book to just kind of answer questions that are out there. Well, great. Well, John, again, thank you so much for joining uh, me to discuss your book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading. Sure, Jackson.
Great. Well, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, uh, discussing John H. Walton's book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation, published by IVP Academic 2023. I've been your host, Jackson Reinhardt. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.